I would like to tell you the story of a young man who was very frustrated with the music in his church. His name was Isaac. And when he was about 20 years old, he was complaining to his father about how he really was disgruntled with the quality of the music in his church. And so his dad gave the classic parental advice of saying, well, if you think you can do better, go do it. And so this young Isaac sat about writing a few songs, but his dad was not very impressed with the music that his son was writing. He, he actually thought that it was quite irreverent, like it didn't have any place in church because he didn't think it honored God the way that it really should. At one point, Isaac's dad said to him, Isaac, if you can't be reverent, you can at least keep your mouth shut about things that, you don't, that don't concern you. And so you see that his dad was not very impressed with the music that Isaac was writing, and, and, and he was even less impressed when Isaac shared that he planned to write a whole bunch of songs and fill an entire songbook that would eventually perhaps replace the hymnal that was used in, in their church. His dad did not like that idea at all and said, well, the old hymnal is good enough for, for your grandfather and for your father, so I reckon it will have to be good enough for you as well. So as we see, his father was not super excited about the music that his son Isaac was writing. But as we look at what came of all this music that young Isaac was writing, I think today here in the 21st century we can be thankful that Isaac did not stop writing music. Let me tell you a little bit more of the story. This man's name was Isaac Watts, and he lived back in the 1700s, and he became one of the most prolific hymn writers in history, through the course of his life, he wrote over 600 hymns, many of which have been passed down to us today. They've really stood the test of time. In fact, in our hymnal that we have in our pews here at Freedom's Church, there are a dozen hymns that were written by Isaac Watts. And many of them are very well known. Uh, perhaps you've heard of uh, the song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. That song was written by Isaac Watts. Oh God, our help in ages past. Isaac Watts, We're Marching to Zion, Isaac Watts, Joy to the World, Isaac Watts, and there are a number of others that if you heard the tunes or perhaps if you heard the name as well, you would probably recognize those as well. Isaac Watts was a very prolific hymn writer, but there was controversy surrounding Isaac Watts' music. In fact, when we look down through church history, it's amazing how music can become so divisive, especially when anything new is introduced. I mean, back in the 80s and 90s and somewhat into the 2000s here in America, there were what were called worship wars, as there, there were some new contemporary praise songs being introduced in churches, and, and they were played by guitars and keyboard and drums, and there was a tremendous controversy around those things, where you'd have some people saying, we want this new music because we think it's more relevant to, to the younger generations. But then you'd have other people in churches who would really dig in their heels and say, well, the hymns that we've had sung for a long time, they worked like Isaac Watts' dad said, they work for our grandfathers, they work for us, and they need to work for you as well. And so you get literal splits in churches over music. You rewind 100, 150 years when pianos were first introduced in churches. And we think today, hey, pianos are a normal staple in, in church music. Well, when they were first introduced, it was certainly controversial because in that time, pianos were seen, seen as barroom instruments. They were used only in saloons. And so people thought, well, they're an irreverent instrument, and so they don't have any place in church. You rewind uh, another 100, 150 years to the time of Isaac Watts, and he was quite the lightning rod for controversy because he was challenging the norms 
for church music where he lived in England and in Scotland. You see, up to that point, church music in England and Scotland was almost all scripture that was put to song. It would, it would quote scripture, usually the Psalms, and just put music to it, and that's what people would sing. But as Isaac Watts started to write music, he wrote a little bit differently. It would still have biblical themes. It would still have the biblical principles that would be coming through. It would still be based on scripture, but it would not take scripture verbatim and put it to music. Now, for us, that may seem kind of trivial because, you know, the vast majority of the songs we sing are more about biblical principles than about literal, literal scripture taken verbatim and put to music. But for them, that was incredibly contentious. They actually divided churches where you'd have some people in churches who would say, we like Isaac Watts' new music. We want to sing that in addition to the music we're currently singing. You'd have other people in those churches who'd say, no, we want the traditional stuff. Isaac Watts' music is irreverent. It's not biblical. And there were literally churches that split in half. They would form two separate congregations because they couldn't agree over whether or not to use Isaac Watts' music. Here in America, the same controversy came over here where there was one account of a, uh, a church leader who went on horseback around the country meeting with churches and meeting with pastors trying to persuade them not to use Isaac Watts' music. So he was a lightning rod for controversy, but as I said earlier, I think we can be thankful that his music did stand the test of time and came down to us today. Now, one of the big projects that Isaac Watts worked on during his life was a songbook based on the Psalms. Ironically, um, it was the Psalms that people mostly sung from in those churches. He had the songbook that was based on the Psalms, but it wasn't verbatim. Instead, he was seeking to Christianize the Psalms. Because you see, the Psalms were originally written in ancient Israel. It was before the time of Christ. But in our era, in the Isaac Watts era, we know that Jesus had come, and that he lived, that he died, that he'd been resurrected, that he ascended to heaven. And so Isaac Watts wanted to look at the hymns through the lens of New Testament faith in Christ. And so one of the hymns that came from that was the hymn Joy to the World. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. So I invite you, if you'd like to follow along, you can turn in your hymnal to page 270 to Joy to the World. But I also invite you uh, to turn in your Bible to Psalm 98. Because Psalm 98 is the psalm that Joy to the World is based on. We're actually going to start with Psalm 98, and then in a few minutes we'll go to the hymnal. Uh, today we're continuing our sermon series called Carols, where we are examining some of the, some of the most popular Christmas hymns and seeking to, to gain new and fresh understanding into the birth of Christ from these hymns, and especially as the hymns relate to Scripture. So as we prepare to look at Joy to the World this morning, will you please pray with me? Father, we thank you again that you give us so many reasons to be joyful. We do know that we live in a broken world, but we thank you that this broken world is not all that there is, but that there is hope. And because of that hope that comes through Christ, through his first coming into this world and then in his second coming in the future, we know that there is a hopeful confidence that the broken will be made new. And so this morning as we look into Psalm 98, as we examine joy of the world, we pray that you will give us a fresh understanding of the joy that you offer through Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. As I said, Joy of the World is based on Psalm 98. And, and the way that Isaac Watts wrote these, these hymns based on the Psalms, so he's, he'd start with the scripture, and then after he examined the scripture, then he would write the psalm. 
or the song. So we're going to start with the scripture as well, with Psalm 98. And Psalm 98 breaks very nicely into three different parts. And the first part is in verses 1 through 3. And what we're going to see throughout the psalm is that Psalm 98 is a call to celebrate God with great joy. It's a call to celebrate God with great joy. So I'm going to start reading in verse 1. The psalmist says, Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. And so we're going to see three different reasons we should celebrate God with great joy in this passage. But the first reason is that we should celebrate God because he is the loving Savior. We see in this passage, verses 1 through 3, the word salvation occurs several different times. In verse 2, it says, the Lord has made his salvation known. Uh, Up in verse 1, it says, he has worked salvation for himself. In verse 3, it says, all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Now, when we here in the 21st century think about salvation, we oftentimes probably think about forgiveness of sins that comes through faith in Christ. We think about salvation in the spiritual sense of how when we die, we will, if our faith is in Christ, we'll be able to go to heaven rather than to hell. So we, we think of, again, salvation in that spiritual sense. And that's very biblical from a New Testament perspective, after Christ has already come. But back in the Old Testament, we need to recognize that salvation had a bit of a broader, more general sense. It meant being delivered from some sort of harm or evil, being protected from those things. And so when we see the word salvation occur multiple times in Psalm 98, that's what it's referring to. It's referring to how in Israel's past, God has worked in amazing ways to protect and to deliver Israel from harm. And they could think of any number of things if they wanted to. They could think of how God delivered Israel out of slavery in Egypt. They could think of how when Israel was fleeing from Egypt, how God parted the Red Sea to protect Israel from the the coming Egyptian army. They could think of the many battles in which which God protected and delivered uh, Israel. They could think of many different things, but the psalmist here actually doesn't give specifics. I think he's intentionally ambiguous to not point the people to a specific event in the past that they should become reminiscent or sentimental about. Instead, he's referring generally to, you know, our God, he is a saving God. He's delivered us in many different ways. Therefore, we should worship him. And that idea of worshiping, worshiping and celebrating God is the intent that the psalmist has here. And he says that the deliverance and the salvation that God has accomplished really lead to a couple different things. First of all, in verse 3, it shows that it demonstrates God's love and his faithfulness. That when God has delivered Israel in the past, it shows that God is loving and that he's faithful. I mean, think about a marriage. You have a husband and wife. I mean, they can say all they want that they love each other and that they're going to be faithful to each other. But there comes a point where talk is cheap if their words are not backed up by their actions of love and faithfulness. And it's really the same with God, that God is saying, you can look in the past and look at what I have done through my deliverance of you all, and you can see that I have been loving and that I have been faithful. And secondly, God's, God's work in the past shows to the world God's glory. We see that all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation 
of our God. What that's saying is that, that, that people can see that God has done great things and they then should respond in worship. So the first part of Psalm 98 says that we should celebrate God because he is a loving Savior. Now I want to move on to the middle three verses of this psalm, verses 4 through 6. They say, Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst in a jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord, the King. And so what this middle section says is that we should celebrate God because he is the sovereign king. What's being described here in verses 4 through 6 is how people would typically welcome a king. There would be great music and great celebration when a king would enter a town. We see here that there should be shouts for joy when a king enters. I mean, these shouts for joy are, are literally just exclaiming and shouting and yelling these short phrases of, of praise as a king comes into town. You think about the triumphal entry. When Jesus was entering his last week of earthly ministry and earthly life, he entered Jerusalem. And people saw him as a coming king. And think about their responses as Jesus, Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem. They thought he was the coming king. They would shout, Hosanna. Praise God. Hosanna in the highest. In Luke, we even see, they said, blesses the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They recognized that he was a king and the, the response that they were giving was shouting praises to God and to Jesus. Shouting is a normal way to welcome a king, as is these last couple of instruments here. In, they're listed in verse 6, trumpets and the blast of a ram's horn. Those are instruments that are meant to give these big blasts of sound, extremely loud, kind of like an air horn, to get people's attention and show them, hey, someone very important is coming. A king is coming. You need to pay attention to them. This idea of a trumpet is more of a, a bugle of sorts. It's not a trumpet with three valves like we have today. Uh, it's it's a, just a, a, probably a brass instrument or a silver instrument that would be used to make a lot of sound to get people's attention. And this is a welcome for a king. And the fact that God is a king means that he is meant to rule. And therefore, we are meant to submit to him. But realistically, not everyone in the world wants to submit to God. There are a lot of people who want to live freely from anyone telling them the way they should live. I, I, I came across a quote a while ago from an atheist. He's a, his name is Thomas Nagel. He's a professor at New York University. And I, I really appreciate how candid he is about his views of God or what he prefers to see as the lack of existence of God. Let me read something that he says. Thomas Nagel says, I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. So you hear Thomas Nagel saying, I really... I don't want there to be a God because I do not want to have to submit to anyone but myself. That is not the attitude of Psalm 98. Psalm 98 is the complete opposite, saying, God, we want to welcome you here as our king. We welcome you with shouts. We welcome you with joyful music. We welcome you with open arms. I want to move on now to, uh, to the last few verses of the psalm, verses 7 through 9. Let the sea resound and everything in it. 
the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. So this is showing that we need to celebrate God because he is the righteous judge. Now, it's, it's interesting if you really follow the scope uh, of, of what's being focused on in this psalm. The first three verses focused on Israel singing praises to God. The next three verses focused on all people everywhere worshiping God and welcoming him as the king. And these third three, this third set of three verses focuses on all creation, including nature, metaphorically worshiping God because he is worthy of worship and praise. We have to recognize that when sin entered the world, nature suffered as well. It wasn't just human beings who suffered the consequences of sin. The entire creation suffers consequences. Think about weeds. If, if you garden, if you have any flowers outside, you are probably well accustomed to weeds. Now, some people let weeds just kind of grow up and do whatever the weeds want to do. Uh, but a lot of us like to try to manage those weeds. If you want to manage them well in a garden or in a, in a flower bed or something like that, you pretty much have to constantly be out there pulling weeds, don't you? I mean, it's amazing to me how weeds grow so much faster than everything else around them. Um, we have a little garden back behind our house and we have a few tomato plants and usually some zucchini and stuff like that. And this summer, I got busy for a while and didn't pull weeds for a couple of weeks. And then we were out of town for a few days. And all of a sudden, I looked over at a garden. And we have weeds out there that were literally larger than our, larger than our tomato plants. And I was like, man, how do those weeds grow so quickly? And amazingly, these weeds were incredibly deceptive, too, because they actually looked like tomato plants. Um, so anyway, weeds. I mean... They can be very frustrating. You have to constantly tend to them. But weeds and thistles and thorns and all those things are results of the fall of humanity. They're results of what's known as the curse. If you look back in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve sinned against God, he, he pronounced a curse against, this, against creation. And a part of that curse was thorns and thistles and weeds growing and the ground being hard. Uh, which made it, meant that humans still had to work the fields, but it was no longer easy. Work was no longer a joy for people. For you women who've given birth, you know that, that the outcome of birth is a joyous occasion, but the process of labor is oftentimes incredibly painful. The pain of childbirth also is a part of the curse. It's a, it's a consequence of sin in this world. It's not the way God originally designed this world. But he allows this pain, allows this hardship to come in order to drive us back to him rather than allowing us to get comfortable without him in this world. You look at the natural disasters in this world, hurricanes and floods and tornadoes and um, earthquakes and things like that that wreak havoc in people's lives. These too are a result of sin and the fall of humanity. It's not the way that creation was originally intended and designed. But the creation, too, is suffering consequences of the sin of humanity. I want to go over to an interesting passage in Romans 8. It's where Paul is talking about uh, the consequences of sin in, in creation. Romans 8, beginning in verse 19, it says, The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. 
For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So this again is speaking most likely in a metaphorical sense of, of the creation of nature is suffering as a result of our sin. And, and, but nature is looking forward to that time when it will be released from its bondage to decay. It's, it's, Paul says the creation is sort of in the pains of childbirth, groaning, waiting for that time where it will be liberated uh, from, from the, the, the decay and the devastation that has become a part of nature. And Psalm 98 anticipates the joy of that time when nature will be liberated when God is fully ruling. And it says here that God will come and judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. Now, oftentimes when we think of judges, we think of judges with negative connotations. We think of, um, I mean, if you ever had to appear before a judge for some reason, typically that's not the most joyous occasion. But a righteous, good judge is there to make sure that there is peace in the society. Make sure that, that things are running well. And that's the type of judge that God is going to be. Now I want to turn over to Joy to the World, to the, to the song. So again, if you have your hymnal out, you can look over to page 270. As I said, Joy to the World is based on Psalm 98. Um, and I wanted to start with Psalm 98 because it really gives us an understanding of why Isaac Watts wrote what he wrote in the song Joy to the World. So I want to start off, I'm going to read all four stanzas at some point this morning, but I'm going to start off with stanza one. Isaac Watts writes, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing. So do you hear any echo here in stanza one, back to Psalm 98? I think one of the things that comes through here is the fact that God is king. It says, let earth receive her king. That's a direct reference back to God being the king in Psalm 98. And then the rest of the passage talks about, well, it does talk about let every heart prepare him room. It talks about we need to submit to God's kingly rule. But then we see in heaven and nature sing. It's talking about those last few verses of Psalm 98, about how creation too is going to rejoice when God comes and makes everything new again. Moving on to stanza two. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. So this is talking about the Savior. He will reign and how there should be great, great joy. Remember that those first three verses in Psalm 98 talk about God being the Savior of Israel. And we know that Jesus has come as our Savior. And we need to recognize that, that if, when a Savior comes, that is a cause of great joy. Here in, the, here in this passage, it talks about let, let men or people, their songs employ, so people should be joyful. It talks about uh, fields and floods and rocks and hills and plains. Repeat the sounding joy. So nature, again, is also joining in this joyful song to the Lord. And again, when, when you see someone... As your Savior, when you are saved from something that wasn't very good, your natural response will be joy, I believe. 
I remember back a few years ago, my parents had just purchased a new boat for our lake. Um, there was a lake called Mark Twain Lake near my parents' house. And my parents for a long time had this old boat. Um, and it was beginning to break down uh, to the point where it was not reliable at all anymore. And they made the decision to get a new boat because my family uh, likes to go tubing and skiing and stuff like that. And so my family had uh, this new boat. But one of the things that we did not know was that the gas gauge did not work very well in that boat. And so the first time I was out on the boat, I think it was the second or third time my parents had it out, we just had a full day of skiing and tubing and a ton of fun. And it was, it was in the evening and the lake was pretty quiet. We were out in the middle of this fairly big portion of the lake. All of a sudden the boat starts sputtering and dies. It's out of gas. The gas gauge still said there was about a third of the tank left. But nope, it was out of gas. We're stuck out there. We have one little paddle. Um, we're a long way from any boat dock or from any marina. Um, there were not many boats left out there. So it's, it's a bit concerning. Um, periodically, every, probably every five minutes or so, we see a boat going by somewhere within our eyesight. And every time we see a boat going by, we're honking the horn on the boat. We're, we're waving towels. We're yelling for them. And, and a number of boats went by in the far distance. I mean, I don't blame them because they probably didn't see us at all. And finally, after probably 15 minutes or so, a little boat saw us and pulled up next to us. And, and there was a great celebration. And granted, we were just in the boat. We eventually would have, I mean, it wasn't a life and death situation. But even still, we were clapping. We were cheering. We were saying, thank you so much. We were excited. This little boat pulled us in and, and all was good after that. But that's a picture of how even in the simplest of circumstances like that, there is joy when someone comes to help save you, help deliver you from, from, from difficult circumstances. How much more so when you recognize that God is our Savior from eternal separation from Him in hell, that we should be joyful. I think that if, you know, we go through challenging times in life, there are those times where we really don't feel very joyful in our lives. Because, again, there's a lot of hardship and trouble in this world. But I think that in those times that we don't feel that much joy in God, it's important that we go back to Him, that we go to Scripture, that we think back to where we would be without God, that we think back to where would we be if God simply ignored our sin problem, if He left us to wallow in our own sins, our own brokenness. But instead, He came to be our Savior. And even in the most difficult circumstances in this life, that can be a reason for joy. The fact that Jesus came shows that God loves us and that he is faithful. And that gives us hope in the future as well. So the second stanza of Joy of the World talks about God being our Savior. I want to jump ahead to stanza four now. It says, He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. So verse 4 is talking about God being the judge. He rules the world with truth and grace. And so he is ruling, he is judging, uh, he is making the nations prove the glories of his righteousness. This is a concept that may be a little tough to grasp because what does it mean that he makes nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love? Well, what that's basically saying is that people, he, he wants people to recognize him for who he is and he wants people to respond accordingly. That's what it means to prove 
uh, prove his righteousness and to prove the wonders of his love. That they see who God is and that they respond accordingly. This is what we're called to do when God reveals truth. It's been said that observation of observing what God's doing without application is abortion. You think about abortion, it's ending a child's life prematurely. It's the same thing. If God reveals some truth, whether it's through Scripture or through some other means, and we just listen to that truth and we think, oh, that's nice, but we don't actually take it and apply it to our lives, that's like committing an abortion on that truth that God revealed because God intends that when he reveals something about himself that we respond and apply it. And that's what, God's, or that's what Isaac Watts is writing about here in verse 4. Now you notice I skipped verse 3. I want to return to that right now. Uh, I'll read it first and then we'll dig into it a little bit more. It says, No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Now this is a verse that I think is very interesting. And why did Isaac Watts put this into, the, into this song? Because it's not a verse that is specifically contained in Psalm 98. But it is implicitly there. Because if we recognize this reality of the holy God coming, we also have to recognize the fact that that should be something that scares us. Because God is a holy God. And we are sinful people. And Psalm 98, enjoy the world, it's all talking about the excitement and the joy that's associated with God coming. But again, if we are sinful people, which we are, that, that is actually a very fearful thing. But this points us back to the gospel, back to Jesus Christ and what he has done. That through his life and his death and his resurrection, he offers forgiveness for sins. He offers true spiritual salvation. And so, so verse 3 of Joy of the World looks forward to that time when sins and sorrows will no longer be a part of our existence. But they will be a thing of the past because Jesus has won the victory over those things. And we live in a very broken world. That's what verse 3 is talking about here. You even see that thorns infesting the ground. But he comes to make his blessings flow. He's going to make this broken world whole again. I think of how, um, how we, we face so many challenges in this world. How... There are a lot of things that, that we see happen where we're like, why does that happen? We had a, 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 our life group meeting. We have a group that meets every other Friday night at our house. And this is just a story that's going to be kind of a metaphor for where we're going here. But our life group meets at our house. And one of the things we do at the beginning of each of those meetings is share a meal together. And a couple of Fridays ago, uh, we had a nice meal, a nice time together. Uh, we were all done. We were out on the front porch uh, saying goodbye to, to some people who were out there. And all of a sudden, a glass lid from one of the dishes fell from uh, someone's hand and hit the concrete floor of the porch and shattered. I mean, it really did seem like it was a million pieces. I could not believe how little all those pieces were. I mean, it wasn't any big chunks. I mean, it was little tiny pieces. I mean, tiny and, I mean, there's absolutely no way that even if you wanted to, that you could put that lid back together. No matter how much glue you had, um, it was in such little pieces, and they were scattered everywhere. It was broken beyond repair. As we look at this world, there are a lot of pieces of brokenness all around us. 
that in many ways are broken beyond our repair, that no matter what we do, no matter how hard we try, we cannot put the pieces back together. I mean, I think of the shootings recently in Connecticut. I think of the shootings this summer out in, in, Den- or in Colorado. I mean, people said up to that point that's the worst mass shooting in, in America's history. And I would say this recent one is even worse. I mean, look at how cancer and other diseases ravage people's bodies. I know even during this last calendar year, there have been a number of us here in this congregation who have lost very close loved ones to cancer or to other diseases or even the old age. I think of the plight of orphans, how uh, adoption is becoming much, much more difficult around the world because governments are shutting down the ability of people to adopt these orphans. So who's suffering? The kids. I mean, I look at all these different things. I think about the relational turmoil that can happen in people's lives, uh, of the pain that we can carry around because of what other people do or say to us that should never be done or said. There's a lot of brokenness in our world. And we as humans cannot ultimately put it back together. But that's where the message of Psalm 98 and joy to the world comes in. That Jesus came one time already. And through his death on the cross and through his resurrection, he defeated death. He defeated sin. And we still live with brokenness here, but we know that the beginning of the end is already coming. It's already here. And, and one time, sometime in the future, Jesus is going to return and make everything new again. And that's, I think, another part of the coming that joy to the world looks forward to when Jesus returns to fully institute his kingly reign to be that savior, to be that king, to be that judge, and to put those broken pieces back together. We can't fix all the brokenness in our world, but God can. He's in the process of doing that now as people turn to him through faith in Christ. But ultimately, we look ahead to that time when Christ returns and he will make those broken pieces whole once again. And so as we celebrate Christmas, let us remember that, that Jesus' birth was not the end. It was really just the beginning of God working things out to put the broken pieces back together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came while we were yet sinners, that you came into the midst of this broken world to take the brokenness to take the sin upon yourself to the cross so that then the broken pieces could be made whole again. I pray for each person here, Lord. I know that we all carry around various scars, various challenges, various burdens. Help us, Lord, to trust these things to you and to look ahead with joyful anticipation and joyful confidence of when the old Savior is going to return and make these broken pieces whole again. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.